Genesis chapter 20 is where we are this morning. Genesis chapter 20. It's good to be back with you again. I was, uh, had, a, had a blessed time away teaching at uh, New Tribes Mission and enjoyed very much the opportunity uh, to do that and also to preach other places last weekend. But glad to be home and glad to be back at Points Pass uh, this morning and to be here uh, with you. Genesis chapter 20 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 to 8, although we'll we'll cover the entirety of the chapter as we go. Let's begin by reading verses 1 down to verse 8. It says, And Abram journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his eternal and precious word. It's often said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. If such is the case, Genesis chapter 20 might be entitled Abraham's Insanity, for the events in this chapter have a familiar ring to them. Some 25 years before, remember, during a time of famine, Abraham had traveled down into Egypt. Fearing that he might be killed in order that his wife would be taken into the Pharaoh's harem, Abraham had said to Sarah at that time, Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Well, that episode didn't end well, did it? And in respect to Abraham, he lost his testimony in the, in the, as a consequence of that previous sin. But now he does exactly the same thing all over again. He falls back into his own old ways. And and as as we know, the, the outcome of this is not going to be any different. So as we examine this chapter, we find three elements to this story. First of all, in verses 1 to 8, where we've just read, we see Abraham's deception. Then in verses 9 to 13, we'll see Abraham's defense. And finally, in verses 14 through 18, we'll see Abraham's deliverance. Look at Abraham's deception here in those first eight verses. Now, previously, we find Abraham dwelling at Mamre. Mamre is the place of strength. And there the Lord, accompanied by two angels, met him, came unto him, renewed the promise of a son through Sarah. 
Now it was there too that God had also revealed his determination to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, as the friend of God, was in a good place. But how quickly, friends, victory can turn to defeat. For some totally inexplicable reason, Abraham decided to move south until he came at last to the town of Gerar, which was in Philistine territory. Now, upon his arrival, Abraham decided to rely on his old trick and, and to give this, uh, this uh, second outing. Look at verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. You know, I can't help wonder what was going through Sarah's mind when Abraham yet again says, she is my sister. He denies that she's his wife. And, and indeed, he puts her at risk for the second time. She is going into a harem as a consequence of her husband's dishonesty. By the way, Sarah is now about 90 years of age. Now, if you're wondering, well, 90 years of age going into a harem seems a little strange. Remember that the aging process was likely retarded in those early chapters of Genesis, in that early history of man. And so in all likelihood, in respect to the aging process, she probably looked similar to a woman of about 35 years of age in our particular experience. Well, Abraham's plan is is going swimmingly. His life is secure. He's able to go freely about his business in Gerar without fear of attack. But then Abimelech has this dream. And in that dream, he hears the voice of God. And, and what, a voice, uh, what a voice it is. God comes to her and he says, Behold, thou art but a dead woman. For the woman which thou hast taken, she is a man's wife. In verse 3. Behold, thou art a dead man. I think that would get anybody's attention, wouldn't you? <laughs> Somebody said, you're a dead man. That would get your attention. It would get my attention. I remember many years ago, uh, meeting a, a brother in Christ who was saved in, uh, in uh, McGilligan, or in McGabry prison. And uh, he was telling me that he began to witness to his fellow inmates, uh, all of whom were paramilitary inmates. And of course, uh, many of those men, uh, because of the lives that they lived, uh, they, uh, they were often living in fear of death and concerned that someone was going to uh, attempt to take an, make an attempt upon their lives. And, and so he would come up behind them and he would say to them, there's a death sentence out on you. And of course, they'd be alarmed. And they come back to him and they say, well, well, who is it? Who's after me? He would say, God, the wages of sin is death. <laughs> but it's true, there is a death sentence out in you. You see, none of us are going to get out of this life alive. There's a death sentence upon every one of us. Behold, thou art a dead man. If every one of us would heed the words of Christ in that respect, we could enter into life. Behold, thou art a dead man. By nature, we are dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God, destined for an eternity without Christ. If only men had the sense of old Abimelech to heed the warnings of God that when he says to us, Behold, you are a dead man. And to look to Christ and to live. What a difference that would make in our lives. Well, immediately this king, King of Abimelech, or King of Gerar, Abimelech, challenged the justice of God. He said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? In verse 4. 
The question is with reference to Solomon Gomorrah. You remember that, that, uh, that debate God had or that conversation that God had with Abraham and Abraham with God. Lord, if there's 50 righteous in this city, will you destroy it? If there's 45, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10. And evidently, Abimelech had, had got wind of this conversation. Perhaps Abraham himself had shared it with him. And so he, he refers to the dealings of God with us, Solomon Gomorrah. And he says, Lord, you know, surely you won't judge a righteous nation. Surely if there are some righteous people, uh, you would not bring such a judgment upon us. Of course, the man didn't understand that it wasn't man's righteousness that would save, would save uh, Gerar from the judgment of the Lord, but the grace of God that would save that city from the judgment of God. Then the king confessed that what he had done, he had done in innocency. He had done, uh, he had, he had done wrong, but he didn't realize that he had done wrong, and there was an opportunity here for him uh, to do that which is right. God indeed acknowledges in verse 6 that what he had done, he had done in the integrity of his heart. He hadn't meant any ill will. He hadn't meant to sin against the Lord. He hadn't uh, done anything within his culture and understanding uh, that was particularly wrong, that what he had done, he had done in response to the, the comment of Abraham that Sarah was in fact his sister and not his wife. Yet he could make this situation right if he would do the right thing. If he would return Sarah to Abraham, then the sentence of God would not be upon him. So waking up the next day, as we read, the king relayed his nightmare to his counselors, and they were afraid. Notice verse 8, and the men were sore afraid. Why were they afraid? Because they had seen what God had done to Sodom. Now notice Abraham's defense in all of this in verses 9 through 13. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister, she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me at every place whither we shall come. Save me, he is my brother. So that morning, Abimelech calls Abraham to account. The king wanted to know why he had lied, why he had done what he had done, why he had brought the displeasure of God upon him. Why have you done this? Have I offended you, he says. You know, uh, what were you after? What were you thinking? Why in the world would you tell me a lie like that, that this is your sister when in fact she's your wife? You know, rarely do we hear such a pathetic excuse for sin as that which Abraham gave. Notice the opening words of his, of his response. He begins by saying, because... I thought, because I thought in verse 11, because I thought, you know, how often do we get ourselves into trouble with those words? Because I thought, I had a better idea, I had a a brighter plan, 
You know, I had a, had, a, had a moment of genius. I had my own opinion as to how to deal with this situation. I had my own twisted logic and, and my, own, uh, my own way of thinking about this. And we oftentimes get ourselves into trouble because we leave the word of God and we settle on our own thinking. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying to be a Christian you have to shoot your brains out. But what I am saying to you is this. That sometimes the scriptures are counterintuitive. They go against our, our natural instincts, our natural intuition. And when that happens, we must bow to the word of God. We must accept what the Bible says. So instead of applying what the Bible says, instead of applying God's word to his own circumstances, Abram, Abram relied on his own judgment. And he said, because I thought. The Bible says, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of man that they are vanity. You see, it doesn't really matter what you think. It only matters what God thinks. A number of years ago, I was invited to sit on a panel of ministers at a high school in England. And there was myself, and there was a Church of England minister, and there was a, a lady Methodist minister. And it was a GCSE class. And the children were allowed to ask any question that they wanted to ask of any of those ministers concerning their religious beliefs. Well, you can imagine what sort of fun day this was. What do you believe about creation and evolution? The Anglican minister was a theistic evolutionist. The Methodist woman was an outright evolutionist. And I was a creationist. I'm a creationist. And so that was one point of of, of uh, con- uh, contest and conflict. And then they were asked, well, what do you believe about homosexuality? Well, that was another interesting discussion. And I don't have to, I guess, I don't have to tell you where I stood on that and, they, and where the Methodist woman stood on that. We were at polar opposites. But then here was the best question that came, what do you think about women preachers? <laughs> oh, oh dear, now we're in trouble. So they went to the Methodist lady. And she said, well, you know, she, of course she's got to defend women preachers, hasn't she? So she goes, well, you know, Jesus had lots of lady friends. The late women were the first to the tomb. You know, the Bible values women and so on. She'd give all these, all these reasons why she could be a woman minister. And then they came to me. And I said, well, the Bible says, if a man desire the office of a bishop, that he's to be the husband of one wife. I think said that's very difficult if you're a woman. And I said, the Bible says that a woman is not to usurp authority over a man in teaching. And I gave these various scriptures and I explained the reasoning. And the Methodist woman turned to the kids and she said, well, now boys and girls, you've heard what David has had to think, had to say, and you've heard what I have to say. Now what do you think? And this young fellow stands up and he says, well, she says, he says, uh, I think it's really just a matter of opinion. And she said, exactly, she said. It's just a matter of opinion. And I said, excuse me. I said to the young fella, it doesn't matter what you think. I said, it doesn't even matter what she thinks. It only matters what the word of God says. And the word of God says there shouldn't be women preachers. Well, that's where old Abraham was. Because I thought, I thought this way. 
then this makes it right. No, it doesn't. Just because you think a certain way doesn't mean that your thinking is right. Your thinking must be molded to the word of God. Otherwise, you're going to be engaged in wrong thinking. So Abraham's mind and heart led him into sin. And we see the composition of that sin in verses 11 through 13. Notice the key elements of his sin. He said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. You know, there's the first thing that came into Abraham's mind. He was subject to the fear of man. The Bible tells us the fear of man brings a snare. That's the reason why a lot of us I won't witness or are not witnessing because we're afraid of other people, what they think, what their action and reaction will be to our witness. It's the reason why many people don't get saved. They're afraid of criticism from their family, from their friends, from their colleagues. Afraid of what man might do. Afraid of what man might say. And Abram said, surely the fear of God is not in this place. They will slay me for my wife's sake. Well, here's my question. If the fear of God was not in that place, why was Abraham in that place? You see, a Christian has no business being in a place where there is no fear of God unless he's evangelizing. In fact, there's great hypocrisy here on Abraham's part. Because actually, Abimelech did show some fear of God. He showed concern that his city shouldn't be struck as Sodom and Gomorrah had been struck. He was concerned that God wouldn't judge him. And yet Abraham, who was the friend of God, entered deliberately into a lie and embarked upon a dishonesty. There was the fear of man. Then there was an innate selfishness. Notice what he says as he, as he carries on there in, in verse, uh, verse 11 and 12. He said, And Abraham said, Because I thought the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. You know, here's the, here's the fear, uh, fear of man followed by personal selfishness. There was no thought here for Sarah. There was no thought for his wife. There was no thought what would become of her. Uh, no consideration of the wrong he was bringing upon Abimelech. Or indeed, uh, whether, whether indeed he was, uh, was uh, offending the very promises of God toward him. You know, sin, friends, is always self-centered. Sin is always self-driven. It's always about me. It's me acting on my behalf, looking after my interests, taking care of me without any thought of God's will or indeed the needs of others. Sin always focuses on me. There was the fear of man. There was an innate selfishness. There was a deliberate untruth in verse 12. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said unto her, This is thy, my, thy kindness which thou shalt show on me. At every place we shall come. Save me. He is my brother. Verse 13, sorry. Notice how he blamed his sin upon God. When God caused me to wander. When God caused me to wander. You know, there are seven Hebrew words that are translated wander in our Bible. And of those seven Hebrew words that are employed in the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, Abraham chose a peculiar one. It's actually a word that is, that is referenced 50 times exactly in the Scriptures. And every time it is, it is referenced, it is never in a good sense. It's used of animals going astray. 
It's a word that is used of a drunken man reeling as a consequence of his drunkenness. It's used of a prophet's lies in leading people astray of the pathway of a lying heart. Abraham blamed God like Adam blamed God. Abraham blamed God for his sin. Notice what he says there in verse 13. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander. Now here's my question. If you go back over that chapter and look over that chapter, do you find anywhere that God told Abraham to move south to Gerar? He has no instruction from God. He has no indication as to the will of God. He's acting entirely on his own wits. And yet when he gets into trouble, what does he do? He blames God. Friends, don't we often do that? We get into trouble. Whose fault is it? It's God's fault. You got me in this mess. You got me into this fix. Let me tell you, it's only a matter of time, if you haven't heard it already, it's only a matter of time before somebody will blame the events in Ukraine upon God. Somebody will come into conversation with you and they'll say, well, how can there be a God in heaven? Look at what's going on in Ukraine. As if somehow God is at fault for the actions of man. By the way, if people, if anybody ever says that to you, remind them that Putin is a godless man. He's not a religious man. He's an atheist. He's a godless man. In fact, there's far more wars that have been begun by atheists than ever were begun by religious people. And that's a matter of fact. Far more people have died at the hands of atheism than have ever died at the hands of religious people, whatever be the stripe of the religion. But Abraham blamed God, just as men today blame God. Perhaps as you are blaming God, you've got yourself into some trouble. You've backed yourself into some corner. You find yourself in some hole. And then you look up and you say, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? As if somehow God was to blame. What's the Bible say? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is thrown away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now notice how he tries to defend his, his dishonesty with a half-truth there. In verse 12, he says, Yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father and not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. You know what a half-truth is? A half-truth's a whole lie. That's what it is. A half-truth is a whole lie. And this lie, as it turns out, was an ongoing arrangement that was agreed with Sarah right from the outset of their relationship, all the way back to their unsaved days when they were living in Ur of the Chaldees. Abram imposed it on his wife as a, as a kindness that she should show him. When they got married, they, she had this agreement with him that if ever I'm in trouble, you will say you're my sister and not my wife. That was a decision they took ever before they moved from Ur of the Chaldees all the way over into the land of promise. You see, here's the thing, friends. Abraham conditioned his wife to make a promise. He made her make a promise that really was a sinful promise, a dishonest promise, a wicked promise. You see, here's the thing. Love is kind, but love never rejoices, always rejoices in the truth. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Abraham said, if you love me, if you love me, when we get into trouble, you'll say you're my sister and not my wife. 
Let me tell you something. If you're here as a young person and a boyfriend or, or a fiancé or even a husband for that matter ever says, if you love me, you will, and then asks you to do something that is unchristian or immoral or wrong, understand that when he begins with, if you love me, he's actually saying, I'm not loving you. Because if I love you, I won't ask you to do anything sinful. If I love you, I won't ask you to do anything dishonest. If I love you, I won't ask you to do something unkind. If I love you, I won't ask you to do something that's not in the will of God for you. No, love rejoices in the truth. Ever before God called them, they had this fleshly scheme that they'd come up with to keep Abraham out of trouble. And now over 40 years since the day that God first led them out of Canaan, uh, led them to Canaan, these age-old sins of the past rear their ugly heads again. Sin is a way of doing that to you. Sin comes back time and time again. That's why you must always be on your guard. That's why you must never let your guard down. You must always keep your defense up. You must ever be ready to put to death the flesh, the flesh, our flesh, and, and, and put to death our sin. And then there was a distrust of God. Notice here's the long and short of it. Abraham, just as he had done when he went to Egypt before, stopped trusting the Lord. He was trusting himself. He didn't think that God could make good on his promises for him. That God somehow would look after those who look after themselves. Do you ever hear somebody say that? God always looks after those who look after themselves. You know there are Christian people that apply that very bad principle to their life. Abraham took that philosophy. Now look at his deliverance in verse 14. How God actually got him out of the trouble. And Abimelech took sheep in verse 14. And oxen and men servants and women servants. And gave them unto Abraham, and restored him Sarah's wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of thy eyes, unto all that are with thee and with, and, uh, and with all others. Thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now I want you to understand that the fact that Abimelech gave Abraham livestock, the fact that he gave him servants, that he gave him money, that he gave him all of these goods, was not in Abraham's honor, but in honor of Abraham's God. I want you to get that. Earlier God had told told Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet. This is the first time the word prophet is mentioned in the word of God. And it doesn't reference one who foresees necessarily, but one who represents God. So despite his sin, Abraham was still God's man. You see, that's the truth in family relationships. You know, I love all my children, but I don't always love everything they do. I love every one of them, but I don't always agree with everything they do. And no matter what, your children are your children. No matter how much they embarrass you or shame you, they're still your children. You still have responsibility for them. In the words of Griffith Thomas, while God's people are all accepted in the beloved, they're not equally acceptable to the beloved. Think about that. That God went to bat for Abraham was not indicative of God's approval of any of his actions. It was indicative that he was his child and that his promises rested upon him. 
Though God took Abraham's part in public, there can be no doubt that he dealt differently with him in private. You know, a number of years ago, we had an incident when our children were small. Our eldest daughter was always in trouble. Always in trouble. And uh, on this one occasion, uh, Hayes and I went out to get something. We went down to the local shop for something. We came back home, and all the kids were really upset. They were, they were you know, really um, just, just crying, and, and, and you know, they were in, in a panic of some sort. And we inquired as to what happened. And they told us a man had come into the house while we were away and had sworn at them and shouted at them. So we made an inquiry as to who this man was and why he was let into the house. And it turned out that what happened was our daughter, our eldest daughter, on her way home from school, had spotted a pair of trainers that another girl had left behind on the school bus. She lifted the trainers up and brought the trainers home with her. So far, so good. That's all right. Now, a sensible person would bring the trainers back to the girl the next day. But not my daughter. No, she had a better idea. She phoned the girl and teased her and told her she wasn't getting her trainers back. Which irritated the girl's father, who was incensed that he had spent dear knows how much on these trainers and that this girl was going to keep them. So, while Hazel and I were out, he came to the front door and he spoke to our youngest daughter who was probably about seven or eight at this time and he asked for, for me and, he sa- and she said, my daddy's not in, my mommy's not in whereupon he pushed past her into our living room found our eldest daughter and began swearing at her now here's the thing if the man had just told her off at the door for holding the, slip, the, the trainers, it wouldn't have been a problem. But the moment he crosses into our living room, knowing that I'm not there, he's overstepped the line. Wouldn't you agree? And so I thought to myself, well, I'm not letting him off with that. So I went to see him the next day. And I knocked on his door. And I came in. And he and I had what we call in Belfast a Barney. <laughs> we had a bit of a Barney. And I told him in no uncertain terms that he should never, ever consider stepping over the threshold of my door again if I wasn't home. And that his behavior was unacceptable. I also told him that I didn't agree with what my daughter did and I understood why he was angry. But nonetheless, he had no business yelling in my home and using foul language in my home before children who were four and seven and ten years old. Now, you think when I got home, I said to my daughter, there, that's that all sorted out. Now you go and have, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. This has got to be sorted out in our house. And so obviously I come back and I give off to my daughter about her behavior and I let her have it. You see, on the one hand, I'm defending her, but on the other hand, I'm taking her to task. Why? Because she's my daughter. I will defend her with my life against anybody who would come into my home and be a threat to her, but I'm not going to excuse her behavior either. And so it was with Abraham and the Lord. The Lord was willing to go to the defense of Abraham to protect him from any threat that might come from Abimelech, but at the same time, he's not willing to let Abraham off the hook and to approve of Abraham's behavior. So before they leave, Abimelech 
decides that he will give Abraham these various goods, sheep, oxen, men, servants, women, servants, all those things. And notice what he says to verse six, in verse 16. He has a final word for Sarah. He says, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. <laughs> now, it, he knows, he knows that Abraham's her husband. But when he says, Behold, I've given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver, you've got to understand there's a little, there's a little tone of sarcasm there. Oh, by the way, I gave your brother. You know your brother? Your brother? I gave him a thousand pieces of silver. He's acknowledging the lie. He's, he's highlighting the lie. He's telling her, listen, you have been as culpable in this as he was. There's a barb in those words. There's a sarcasm in those words. There's a, a degree of shame upon her in those words. And, 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 you know, in that respect, the Bible says she was reproved at the end of verse 16. In other words, here was a lesson learned. They're never going to repeat this lie again. This is the end of it. This is another fine mess that Abraham had got her into. And finally, in verse 17, Abraham prays. So Abraham prayed unto God. And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. Friends, isn't it far better that we pray before we find ourselves in a mess than to try to pray our way out of a mess? You see, that's what happens. We get ourselves in a mess and, and then we pray. Well, if we had prayed in the first place, we might not get into the mess. We might actually have the direction of the Lord. You know, there's a chorus we used to sing as young people, and maybe you've heard it, I'm sure you have. You know, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Do you ever hear that old chorus? No? Just me? You have heard it? It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. Not my neighbor, but not a stranger, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That's where Abraham was. Really, it was Abraham who needed to be praying here. You see, it wasn't so much Sarah that was in need of prayer. It wasn't even so much Abimelech that was in need of prayer. It was more like Abraham was the one who was in need of prayer. That's where Abraham was. We can almost imagine him saying to the Lord, Lord, it's me. I've only gone and done it again. Do you ever find yourself uttering words like that? You know, maybe you've got a besetting sin. A recurring sin. A sin that keeps emerging in your life. You keep going back to the Lord and you say, Lord, it's me again. I've only gone and done it again. I've only said it again. I've only thought that way again. Do you ever find yourself confessing repeatedly a sin over and over? And yet with all, look at our folly, we continue repeating that sin as though somehow or other we're going to get different results. Friends, I want you to understand that a sin defeated yesterday may return as a fresh temptation today. That's the thing you need to get a hold of. A sin that you've defeated yesterday may return as a fresh temptation today. That's why the Bible says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed 
lest he fall. But there's something else here. I want you to notice in verse 18 that the Lord had fast closed up all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Why did the Lord do that? Well, here's what happens in the next chapter. And we get into the next chapter, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. We find that we come into the birth of Isaac. And here's the deal. If you think about it, if Isaac had been born after these events, and if Abimelech had been permitted uh, to continue having relationships with his harem, uh, even though he had not uh, touched Sarah, uh, there would have been this, this doubt hanging over the birth of Isaac. There would have been this question over his true parentage. So God is sure that the women of the harem in Gerar were barren while Sarah was in their presence. And only as Abraham prays does the Lord permit those women to have children again. Hence, what we see here, there's a satanic plot to muddy the messianic line. But God's plan and God's program can never be blown off course. Jesus, of course, would come. And he would come without any shadow of a doubt through Isaac's line. And there would be no question over Isaac's parentage. God has a plan for your life. And he has a plan for my life. And I'm sure it's not nearly as grand as it was for the life of Abraham or for Isaac. But it's a plan that is perfect for your life. How careful then we must be to walk close with the Lord. To stay daily in his word. And not to rely on our own schemes or our own thinking to aid our own advancement. Friends, here is Abraham's insanity. He tried the same thing twice, expecting different results. Let it not be our insanity. Let's be wiser than that. Let's bed down our lives in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you today, Lord, for the practical lesson that we have garnered today from this chapter of Genesis. And we see Abraham's folly, and Lord, we confess our own folly, that very often we repeat our old mistakes and our old sins and our old ways. That very often, Lord, we allow even the mindset of our old past to dominate and to determine what we're doing in the present. Lord, help us to put to death the old man. Help us to put to death the flesh. Help us to resist temptation. Help us to rely on the word of God in everything that we do. Bless these thoughts to our hearts, I pray. Encourage us in them. In Jesus' name, amen.